0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this, the 28th session of There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this week, we're going to make good on our goal from last week, which is to make it all the way through the Council of Elrond, the second chapter of the second book of The Lord of the Rings. It is wonderful to have you all here with us. We've got Angela here, who is feeling much better. Glad to hear it, Angela. We've got, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Jerome, who is joining us from Belgium, where it is currently 4 a.m., I admire your commitment. I admire your dedication. Thank you for being here with us. We've got Guild Arts, Winters, and Lorna, Jane, and Merging Puppy, and Becca Aller, and Heroes and Bards. Everyone is here. Everyone is here. I'm so glad to see you all. This is going to be a really fun discussion, you guys. And of course, we have Tolkien Lover here joining us for the second week, which is just lovely. Thank you for joining us. Let's get into it. It is going to be a really great and fun session this week. But before we get to all of that, a minor scheduling announcement here at There and Back Again, because... Uh, After teasing it for the last few weeks, I have finally bowed to public pressure, I suppose, and uh, added the Silmarillion to the There and Back Again production schedule. In fact, if I share the official There and Back Again production schedule with you, you can find the link to this in the uh, show notes accompanying every podcast. I'm trying to zoom in, but it's just not. No, don't tell me how to do it. I know how to do it, except obviously I don't know how to do it. There we go. I can zoom in a little bit. Here we go. So we are currently, where are we? Here. This is it. Uh, Session 28 for the 10th of August 2017. And if we scroll all the way through the weeks and the months to come, you'll find that we end uh, the Fellowship of the Ring here in June of next year. Then we're going to spend 12 weeks watching all of the movies. That's going to be pretty big. And then we're going to move into The Silmarillion. The Silmarillion, for those of you who, uh, who may not know, was published uh, posthumously by Christopher Tolkien in 1977, compiled from J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien's huge body of work. The Silmarillion, as it was published, was never a compiled manuscript, but these stories had been around from the earliest phases of Tolkien's writing career. They deal with the whole history of Ea. They deal with Middle-earth, and they deal with Numenor, and they deal with B- B- Beleriand, and they deal with Valinor, and they deal with everything that there is to deal with, in fact. And Tolkien very much wanted... I'll cancel that slide now. It's not really doing much good to anyone. Uh, Tolkien really wanted the Silmarillion to be the follow-up to The Hobbit. He wanted the Silmarillion to be a foundation for whatever the rest of his you know, body of work would be, but conflicts with his pub- publishers made that impossible. So we are going to study this perhaps not really in its proper place. It may have made more sense to study the Silmarillion first, but I also feel that would have been an overload of detail. So instead, we're going to study these books in their you know published order, and I think that that will make a certain amount of sense and will be at least a little more accessible. Uh, the Silmarillion is composed of five parts, four of which we are going to cover one week each you know we're going to spend one week covering the aina the song of creation then we're going to spend one week covering the vala Quinta, the story of the valar and these uh angelic beings who move into the frame of of arda then we are going to spend about i think 14 weeks something like that covering the Quenta silmarillion and this is the bulk of tolkien's deep legendarium this is where we get Beren and and Turin Turambar, and we get Fingal, and we get all of the stories that form the deepest parts of Tolkien's Legendarium are embedded there within the Quenta. Then we are going to talk about the Akala Beth. we're going to talk about the Fall of Numenor, that's that story, and then we're going to wrap up with uh, of The Rings of Power and The Third Age, which is basically the story of the Lord of the Rings from a very different perspective. All of that is going to be a ton of fun and we are going to now conclude after 98 episodes of there and back again we are scheduled to conclude on the 14th of march 2019 so i hope you guys aren't busy we're pretty much a quarter of the way through there and back again so Lots more to discuss, and it's great that some of you haven't read it. I think that's, that's going to be really, really good. And as Lady Sarka says, the Silmarillion is awesome, but should be no one's jumping off point. Yes, I completely agree. Also, arguably, no one's jumping on point. I'm not sure that's the best place to start with Tolkien's Legendarium, unless you are particularly given to, uh, to that kind of, of very high oratory, that, that kind of biblical language, which is beautiful in and of its own right but uh, perhaps a little impenetrable right up front so that is what we are going to do here on there and back again over the course of the next what is that year and a half something like that almost two years i suppose i can't wait to get to it but first the council of elrond part two Gandalf Boogaloo. I don't really have a subtitle for this week, except that I borrowed the subtitle from the description of Gollum, you know, small but great with mischief, which is pretty good, a pretty good description of all of our efforts here and there, and back again, in fact. So this week, the second half of the Council of Elrond, last time we caught up with Glowen's story of the Dwarven return to Moria, and the sudden silence that came from Moria thereafter, and the coming of the messenger of Sauron, looking for that elusive trinket stolen by the hobbit Baggins. We heard an account of the history of the ring. We talked about the fall of Numenor and the blood of ancient kings of men, which can still be found in the Dúnedain of the north, such as Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, bearer of the the blade that was broken, and in the Gondorians of the south, including Boromir, who traveled from Minas Tirith to Rivendell following a prophetic dream and arrived just in the nick of time for the council. And I had a couple of conversations this last week about uh, about the account of the fall of Numenor and basically the uh, the lessening of the blood of men over the course of the last thousand years, you know, the, the way in which the line of kings, the, the, the men of Numenor, has been diminished. And there were a couple of you, I think, that were perhaps a little uncomfortable with that because of, well, some unfortunate Connotations associated with you know the purity of the bloodline and the mingling of blood with with lesser peoples and the diminishment that that causes. And I wanted to kind of very carefully distinguish and disambiguate this um what Tolkien is talking about is not you know the the purity of any single genetic stock. I think that would have been pretty um pretty repellent to the professor actually as a core concept and indeed the idea of manufactured purity is specifically addressed not too long from now in fact by the time we get into the two towers, we're going to be talking a little about that um rather than talking about um the kind of mingling of bloodlines and and a diminution of of greatness a diminution of potential and all of the uncomfortable topics that that would of course imply rather the professor was talking about. What causes the men of Numenor to fall is not the the crossbreeding with lesser men, though I mean technically it is, but what really causes the men of Numenor to fall is A, their own hubris, their own unassailable pride, B, the influence of Sauron, who lies and deceives, uh, lies to and deceives the men of Numenor, compelling this, uh, this armada against Valinor and the Undying Lands, which leads to the sinking of Numenor in the first place, but most importantly, Professor Tolkien was addressing the idea that our greatest days are behind us, that there was a golden age, that there still beats within us the potential for greatness, but it is now a fraction of what it was. And in so doing, he is honoring possibly the longest, oldest mythic tradition. He is describing the world in which he finds himself, but also looking backward at real greatness and at real potential, at glory even. The world that we live in, even within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, you know, this world here toward the end of the Third Age, is diminished. It is fallen. We talked about that a little time, uh, a little last time, as Elrond is remembering the hosts of the Last Alliance who came together to defeat Sauron, and how they were but the smallest fraction. Each man individually and en masse, they were but the smallest fraction of the forces that had gathered in the past. That the world is less now it is more modern now and it is less suffused with greatness or at least the potential for that greatness there are flickers still there are embers still of that fire and i think that Tolkien would have argued that there are embers still today of that greatness but they become rarer and rarer and rarer and we must balance this too of course with the professor's perspective on smallness and on humility and on simplicity and on community the men of Numenor were great. They were of great and glorious stature. They were of great and glorious power. They were of great and glorious influence. But they were not good. Not always. Not in an uncomplicated way. Power corrupts. Always within the pages of Tolkien's fiction. That is possibly the most you know fundamental rule of not just people, not just the children of Valinor, but if we go back to the Ainulindalë and the creation of the world of all beings. Power corrupt. And when we embody power in the great, like the Numenoreans, we are saying something very important about the nature of, you know, golden ages, that perhaps the past was glorious, but the present can be good. It can be wholesome. It can be smaller, but it can be more meaningful for that. So I hope that that... That will help lay signs about i I do understand the implications of the narrative about you know diminution and and of, of uh of interbreeding it's it's not entirely comfortable but it's not i think um an ethnic argument or a racial argument or in any way a contemporary argument it is rather a mythic argument that's that's the track that he's taking there um okay i hope that makes a lot of sense all right let's uh keep going here as i catch up here um Oh, this is fair. Yeah. Jackie says, Tolkien doesn't consider other men lesser than the Numenoreans. We see this when we get to the Rohirrim. But there was always a feeling of sadness and tragedy when he refers to the oldest nations. That's fair, right? That mm, genuine greatness within the frame of Tolkien is dependent upon one's capability, almost. That Sam is as capable of greatness as Faramir, who is as capable of greatness as Aragorn. You know, these men exist on, on these... People exist on entirely different tiers of existence, but they are all capable of goodness. But it's goodness of a different sort, and it's goodness of a different capability. So while there is, like, a stark greatness to the Numenorians and to their tradition, it is also, you know, a greatness that leads to their downfall. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Robert says, dropping in for my first live chat ever, and boy, does Alistair not look at all like my wife and I imagined, I choose not to pursue that any further. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to have you here. Excellent. And Gildas Winter says, like the older nations are kind of like the Incas or the Mayans, the Lord of the Rings version. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. It is. Well, okay. That's exactly it. It is partially that. These are vanished civilizations, but they are also part of a tradition of, of diminishment. Basically, the entire story of Arda is a story of diminishment. We are less now than we were, and that is is part of of Tolkien's uh, Tolkien's theology, I guess. His 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 meta uh, yeah metaphilosophy, you know. Um, okay, let's wrap this up and get into it. Okay, I, I'm up to date with the YouTube chat, and we can begin with our slides tonight because we still have many to get through and we are going to begin with uh gandalf story this is where we broke off last week with with gandalf about to speak And he's going to take over pretty much for the rest of the council of elrond we're going to get some aragorn we're going to get some some frodo right at the end we're going to get some elrond it's going to be you know a complex conversation but the bulk of the narrative now is going to belong to gandalf and it is going to be pretty complex and pretty ambitious so we're going to have to move forward with with a great sense of purpose here we begin with frodo wondering aloud in the wake of bilbo's story um about the rest of the story, specifically about what happened to Gandalf, and he is overheard by Galdor. This is our uh, first slide. Galdor of the Havens who sat nearby overheard him. You speak for me also, he cried, and turning to Elrond, he said, the wise may have good reason to believe the halfling's trove is indeed the great ring of long debate, unlikely though it may seem to those who know less, but may we not hear the proofs? And I would, I would ask this also, what of Saruman? He has learned in the lore of the Rings, yet he is not among us. What is his counsel if he knows these things that we have heard? The questions you ask, Galdor, are bound together," said Arond. I have not overlooked them, and they shall be answered. But these things it is the part of Gandalf to make clear, and I call upon him last, for it is the place of honour, and in all this matter he has been the chief. Some, Galdor, said Gandalf, would think the tidings of Glowin and the pursuit of Frodo proof enough that the halfling's trove is a thing of great worth to the enemy. Yet it is a ring. What then? "'The nine of the Nazgul Nazgul keep. "'The seven are taken or destroyed.' "'At this point Glowen stirred, but did not speak. "'The three we know of. "'What then is this one that he desires so much? "'There is indeed a wide waste of time "'between the river and the mountain, "'between the loss and the finding. "'But the gap in the knowledge of the wise "'has been filled at last, yet too slowly. "'For the enemy has been close behind, "'closer even than I feared.' And well it is that not until this year, this very summer, as it seems, did he learn the full truth. Some here will remember that many years ago I myself dared to pass the doors of the necromancer in Dol Galdor, and secretly explored his ways, and found thus that our fears were true. He was none other than Sauron, our enemy of old, at length taking shape and power again. Some too will remember also that Saruman dissuaded us from open deeds against him, and for long we watched him only. Yet at last, as his shadow grew, Saruman yielded. And the council put forth its strength and drove the evil out of mirkwood and that was in the very year of the finding of this ring a strange chance if chance it was chance if chance you call it we never pass up our opportunity to remind uh, to remind ourselves and the uh and the readers that uh there are forces in the world that are Active even now. Uh, Tom asks, I did not think about this until now. I thought after they did their job, the nine were taken from the wraiths. So do they have them or no? Technically, the nine have been taken back. Technically, Sauron does have the nine. And there are a couple of different perspectives on this as we move through. But the simple explanation here is, no, we know of the nine. The nine are accounted for. At least the nine were never out of the power of Sauron. Even when they were possessed by the Nazgul, they were never out of the power of Sauron. We now know that he has reclaimed those rings, but that perhaps is not known to all. Yeah. Um, Angela says, oh, <laughs> Angela says, three rings, what? Three rings? Two, two of us aren't wearing two of the three. No, these aren't the rings you're looking for. Yeah, it's a little awkward feet shuffling from uh, from Gandalf and Elrond there. I like this introduction very much. And I like that we give Galdor here the, uh, the active role, the, the inciting incident in Gandalf's account. Galdor is here, as we learn right at the beginning of the chapter, we get here Galdor of the Havens. He is here as a representative of Cirdan the Shipwright. And Cirdan the Shipwright is, as we will discover when we read the Silmarillion, one of the most important elves that there is. He is one of the only three. There are, okay, let me rephrase that in a more grammatically elegant fashion three elves are currently living in Middle-earth who survived from the beginning of the First Age. And Círdan is one of them. The other two, Galadriel and Calabar, both of whom we will meet. Círdan is, at this point, 11 and a half thousand years old and is immensely important. And yet, even his representative, whom we can assume is trusted and wise, doesn't know the whole story. We're seeing here also in Gandalf's reference that, uh, and well it is that that not until this year, this very summer, as it seems, did he learn the full truth. This is urgent. This is present. This is right now, and it can feel sometimes as we're moving through this long swing of history through the Council of Elrond, as though so much of this is um, is somehow foreshadowed is somehow preordained is somehow known that the world that we're entering into is static but it is resolutely not this is urgent breaking news and also news which is pretty much unprecedented there has never been a moment like this in the history of middle earth yeah Yes, eleven and a half thousand years old. I know. And we don't actually know how many years it, it, it's it's older than that. Eleven and a half thousand years of the sun, uh cured in the shipwright Yes. A lot of candles on his birthday cake, says heroes and parts. Fair. And Graham says the nine the Nazgul keep doesn't sound like Sauron took them back to me. No, that's completely fair. According to this beat here, according to, to Gandalf's account in this scene, the Nazgul still have the rings. That is contradicted elsewhere in in the story. But uh yeah, that's as as of our knowledge right now, the Nazgul have the rings. They are at least accounted for. And I gave a brief kind of gloss of the rings here. The seven dwarven rings, as we discussed last week, and you can see here, Glowin stirs, but does not speak. The seven dwarven rings have all been taken or destroyed. Four have been reclaimed by Sauron. Three have been destroyed by Dragonfire. So we're told. The three, we know of. <clears throat> What then is this one that he desires so much? Yes, there has been a huge gap of time between the river and the mountain. That is between the Battle of the Gladden Fields and the Finding of the Ring, presumably the Finding of the Ring by Bilbo. That's what he's referring to right now. Uh, We're going to get Gollum's story very briefly. We're going to fill in uh, what happened between those two events, between the loss and the finding. But now we know. It's also crucial that we are really introducing uh, Saruman here. We'll get to him in just a little bit when we have a little more information. So Saruman uh, counsels safety. He he speaks of safety and counsels caution. He tells the wise that the ring has been lost into the Anduin and thence into the great sea, that it will never be found again. And everyone kind of breathes easy. Okay, Saruman, you know what you're talking about. You are the ring guy. We're going to believe you. But Gandalf now regrets that easy belief. And we move on to our next slide. From the first, my heart misgave me against all reason that I knew, said Gandalf, and I desired to know how this thing came to Gollum and how long he possessed it. So I set a watch for him, guessing that he would ere long come forth from his darkness to search for his treasure. He came, but he escaped and was not found, and then, alas, I let the matter rest, watching and waiting only as we have too often done. Time passed with many cares until my doubts were awakened again to sudden fear. Whence came the hobbit's ring? What, if my fear was true, should be done with it? These things I must decide. But I spoke yet of my dread to none, knowing the peril of an untimely whisper if it went astray. In all the long wars with the Dark Tower, treason has ever been our greatest foe. That was seventeen years ago. Soon I became aware that spies of many sorts, even beasts and birds, were gathered round the shire, and my fear grew. I called for the help of the Dunedain, and their watch was doubled, and I opened my heart to Aragorn, the heir of Isildur. And I, said Aragorn, counseled that we should hunt for Gollum, too late though it may seem, and since it seemed fit that Isildur's heir should labor to repair Isildur's fault, I went with Gandalf in the long and hopeless search. Then Gandalf told of how they had explored the whole length of Wilderland, even down to the mountains of Shadow and the fences of Mordor. There we had rumor of him, and we guessed that he dwelt there long in the dark hills, but we never found him, and at last I despaired. And then, in my despair, I thought of a test that might make the finding of Gollum unneeded. The ring itself might tell me if it were the one. The memory of words at the council came back to me, words of Saruman, half-heeded at the time. I heard them now clearly in my heart. The nine, the seven, and the three, he said, had each their proper gem. Not so the one. It was round and unadorned, as as it were one of the lesser rings, but its maker sent marks upon it that the skilled may be could still see and read. So one of the great criticisms of Gandalf, and we discussed this back in the second chapter of the first book of The Fellowship of the Ring, is that Gandalf just leaves the ring in the Shire for the longest time. And we see here that he was working the problem, that he was thinking about the ring. And as we discussed back when we were talking about the second chapter, there is no better place for Gandalf to put the ring than the Shire. If it is the One Ring, if it is this terrible, you know, awful weapon of mass destruction in the hands of the enemy, then there is no better place for it than the Shire. The Shire is literally the safest place on earth and in the pocket of a hobbit, the safest resting point for the ring. But he doubted, he feared. From the first, my heart misgave me against all reason that I knew and I desire to know how this thing came to Gollum and how long he had possessed it. From the first, implying there from the moment that he discovered that Bilbo had a magic ring, I guess, from the moment that he first heard the story of Gollum. So he sets out and he watches for Gollum sometime after the events of The Hobbit, but Gollum escapes. Gollum is sneaky and is devious and eludes Gandalf. Time passed with many cares until my doubts were awakened again to sudden fear. Whence came the hobbit's ring? What if, my fear was, what if my fear were true? Should be done with it? These things I must decide, but I spoke yet of my dread to none, knowing the peril of an untimely whisper if it went astray. This is 17 years ago. This is at the long-expected party. This is the moment when Bilbo passes the ring on to Frodo. That's the moment, apparently, when Gandalf's fears are suddenly and violently awakened. Soon I became aware that spies of many sorts, even beasts and birds, were gathered around the Shire, and my fear grew. I called for the help of the Dunedain, and their watch was doubled, and I opened my heart to Aragorn, the heir of Isildur. So we know that the Dunedain were watching the Shire anyway, as they watch all the lands of the north, as they they strive to keep the peace between the Blue Mountains in the west and the Misty Mountains in the east. They strive to protect this land in secret so that it can remain simple and pure and untroubled. That's what the Dunedain do. But then, 17 years ago, Gandalf fears for the ring, fears about the ring, goes to Aragorn and says, no, this is serious, you need to watch the Shire, and the watch is doubled. And I, said Aragorn, counseled that we should hunt for Gollum, and they did. Again, trekking all the way down to the very mountains of Mordor itself, and still not finding him. But then, Gandalf remembers the words of Saruman. The nine, the seven, and the three had each their proper gem, not so the one. It was round and unadorned as it were one of the lesser rings, but its maker sent marks upon it that the skilled maybe could still see and read. So now we learn that there are lesser rings out there in the world. There are actually just minor magical rings in the world, and the one ring is designed to look like them. It is simple and unadorned. So it isn't perhaps completely implausible that Gandalf could have kept a flicker of hope alive that no, no, this ring that Bilbo's got is probably fine. It's probably okay, right? It's probably just a super minor ring. I'd better go and check it out anyway, nonetheless. So he goes to research the ring further and he travels all the way to minas Tirith, where he finds a scroll written by isildur himself and this is the scroll that isildur has it was hot when i first took it hot as a gleed and my hand was scorched so that i doubt if ever again i shall be free of the pain of it yet even as i write it is cooled and it seemeth to shrink though it loseth neither its beauty nor its shape Already the writing upon it, which at first was as clear as red flame, fadeth, and is now only barely to be read. It is fashioned in an elven script of Eregion, for they have no letters in Mordor for such subtle work. But the language is unknown to me. I deem it to be a tongue of the black land, since since it is foul and uncouth. What evil it saith, I do not know. But I trace here a copy of it, lest it fade beyond recall. The ring misseth, maybe, the heat of Saruman's hand, which was black and yet burned like fire, and so Gilgalad was destroyed. And maybe were the gold made hot again, the writing would be refreshed. But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Of all the works of Sauron, the only fair, it is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. An actual first-person account from Isildur, right here at the beginning of the third Age, sometime between the fall of Sauron and the Battle of the Gladden Fields two years later. This is a very narrow window. And we know from Boromir's account that Isildur does in fact return to Minas Tirith and, and spend some time there before traveling north. And this was apparently when this record was written. It was hot when I first took it. Hot as a gleed. A gleed is a, uh, a glowing coal. This is perfectly representative of Tolkien's desire to give Isildur more archaic speech even than the other characters in this book. This feels antiquated, even by the standards of the Lord of the Rings. I, I love the way that this is written. It's, uh, it's just lovely. Um, as I'm scrolling back through Twitter here... Okay, I think I think I have everything under control here. If you guys have questions, you can use the uh, at Point North Media to uh, make it jump out at me here. But yeah, um, yes, and 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 Robert's pulling out here. A big fan of My Precious, how it gets written down in addition to spoken aloud. Here, it's perfect, isn't it? The way that we shift into ring voice here at the end. Um, the ring misseth maybe the heat of Sauron's hand, which was black and yet burned like fire, and so Gilgalad was destroyed. And maybe were the gold made hot again, the writing would be refreshed. But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Of all the works of Sauron, the only fair. It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. Precious, obviously, a word that we are are primed to pay attention to here as we read The Lord of the Rings. But even if not for that, we would still see here, I think, some working of the ring upon isildur but for my part i will risk no hurt to this thing of all the works of sauron the only fair this was a ring as isildur knew that was crafted explicitly to dominate the other rings of power it, there is no good here to this ring it is it is only ever conceivably a tool of evil but isildur is already under its influence of all the works of on the Only Fair, it is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. It's pretty wonderful, yeah, pretty pretty wonderful. Um, good, good. Uh, Graham Ward is asking: um, Is the implication that his ten fingers can hold the nine and the one? What does he do with those of the seven that he has reclaimed? <laughs> Um, yes, as this is a response to uh, to Jackie pointing out that there are other mentions of Sauron holding the nine rings through the legendarium. Not literally holding, of course, but it is interesting that uh, Sauron could potentially distribute the nine again and presumably create more Nazgul. I mean, that's theoretically possible, though arguably he would need the one ring to do it. The, the, the nine might corrupt, but they may not corrupt under his influence in, in quite the same way. Yeah, good. Excellent, all right, <laughs> we're, we're all laughing here in the YouTube chat at the thought of, of Sauron just tricked out in rings, just so many rings, yes. We've got toe rings, we've got finger rings, you know, there could be other parts of his body that require rings too, we don't know for sure, yeah. Okay, on that disturbing thought, let's, uh, let's push on. So this here, I should say before we move on in fact, is reference to the, the inscription within the ring, of course, that we saw back in, uh, back in Bag End. Um, It is fashioned in an elven script of Eregion, for they have no letters in Mordor for such subtle work. But the language is unknown to me. I deem it to be a tongue of the Blacklands since it is foul and uncouth. Isildur is absolutely right. He's absolutely on the money there. Um... Excellent. So Aragorn, meanwhile, while Gandalf travels, let me cancel the slide just for a moment here, still so many slides to get through. Well, Gandalf travels to Minas Tirith and and looks up the scrolls of Isildur and finds the test. This is how he can confirm once and for all whether or not this is the One Ring or whether this is some minor magic ring, whether this is, uh, you know, something that is worth worrying about or something that in fact is just an odd curiosity. While Gandalf is busy with that, Aragorn captures Gollum. We get that, uh, we get that story, and then we discover what has happened to Gollum thereafter. All sat silent for a while until, at length, Boromir spoke. "He's a small thing," you say. "This Gollum, small but great in mischief." What became of him? To what doom did you put him? He is in prison, but no worse," said Aragorn. He had suffered much. There is no doubt that he was tormented, and the fear of Sauron lies black on his heart. "'Still I, for one, am glad that he is safely kept "'by the watchful elves of Mirkwood. "'His malice is great and gives him a strength "'hardly to be believed in one so lean and withered. "'He could work much mischief still if he were free, "'and I do not doubt that he was allowed "'to leave Mordor on some evil errand. "'Alas, alas!' cried Legolas, "'and in his fair elvish face there was great distress. "'The tidings that I was sent to bring must now be told. "'They are not good, but only here have I learned "'how evil they may seem to this company. "'Smeagol, who is now called Gollum, has escaped!' Oh, boy. The elves of Merkwood, in their mercy, took Gollum for a walk in the forest. They have done this more than once, as, <laughs> as Jerome points out here in the YouTube chat. How bad are these elves at keeping prisoners? Uh, pretty bad. Keeping prisoners... Not a, a high point here for, for uh, the Elves of Mirkwood. So they took Gollum for a walk in the forest so that he might enjoy some fresh air and the open sky above him, whereupon they were attacked by orcs, and when the battle was over, Gollum was gone. The Elves track him south through Mirkwood, almost to the gates of Dol Guldur itself, and then abandon the chase. Not great, Elves of Mirkwood, not great um But I do love here the beat that we get from Aragorn, and we see again another moment of tension between Boromir and Aragorn. Boromir assumes he's this small thing you say this golem, small but great in mischief. What became of him? To what doom did you put him? He's not necessarily saying how did you kill him. It is what fate was decided for him. But yes, there is a clear implication here. Oh, this this golem creature is bad news. So what did you do to him? How did you do it? And Aragorn says he is in prison, but no worse. He had suffered much. There is no doubt he was tormented, and the fear of Sauron lies black on his heart. So we have pity for Gollum. Aragorn has pity for Gollum, just as Bilbo did, just as Gandalf did. We see here the hope of redemption, and we may be reminded of Gandalf's twin sentiment to that. There is little hope, but that is not no hope. And also, he has a part to play in all of this. Gandalf has this intuition that says, no, Gollum's important. Gollum has a role to play. And though that may be evil, we can't say for sure that it will be good. We can't say for sure that it will help us. We must preserve his agency. We must allow him to play out his part in the story. And then, yes, poor old Legolas. Poor old Legolas, our introduction is, hey, guys, this is um kind of embarrassing, but we are really bad at keeping prisoners. Yeah. As heroes and Bard said, hi, remember that prisoner you dropped off when we promised to protect? Well, we may have lost him while taking him for a walk. You know, it's fair. <laughs> uh, and Sabrina says, I don't know, Gollum's super annoying, thinking ahead to Frodo and Sam's experience. I can see why the elves wanted to give him some time alone to commune with nature. Apparently not even alone. They set an armed detachment with him out into the forest. They didn't let him go. Oh, exactly. That they literally took him for a walk, and it may well be that they took him for a walk on a leash. If not for the intervention of the orcs, Gollum would still be in prison. And that raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Because this is I don't know, misfortune if misfortune you call it, malchance, if malchance you call it, is this is this supposed to be in some way the Opposite force present in the world of all of this good fortune that our heroes have endured? orcs just show up in the nick of time in Mirkwood, attack the elves, and Gollum escapes. Then they track him to Dol Goldur, but they can't track him any further. Did he know where he was going? What impulse was he following that led him to Dol Goldur? He doesn't presumably know the geography of the Mirkwood terribly well what force is there within Gollum that is driving him in literally the one direction in which the elves couldn't pursue him further was this planned was this orchestrated well possibly we'll uh pick up with that later yeah good good all right yes as jackie says strange that the orcs attacked right then yes very strange strange of strange you call it um So Gollum has gone, and we go back to Gandalf continuing his story of what happens next. At the end of June, I was in the Shire, but a cloud of anxiety was on my mind, and I rode to the southern borders of the little land. Just to uh, push in here, you'll remember that's what Gandalf says. He says, I'm going beyond the borders of the Shire to the south. I've heard bad tidings. I'm going to find out more. For I had a foreboding of some danger still hidden from me, but drawing near. There messages reached me telling of a war and defeat in Gondor, and when I heard of the black shadow a chill smote my heart. But I found nothing save a few fugitives from the south, yet it seemed to me that on them them sat a fear of which they would not speak. I turned then east and north, and journeyed along the greenway, and not far from Bree I came upon a traveller sitting on a bank beside the road with his grazing horse beside him. It was Radagast the Brown, who at one time dwelt in Rosgobel near the borders of Mirkwood. He is one of my order, but I had not seen him for many a year." "'Gandalf!' he cried. "'I was seeking you, but I'm a stranger in these parts. "'All I knew was that you might be found in a wild region "'with the uncouth name of Shire.' "'Your information was correct,' I said. "'But do not put it that way if you meet any of the inhabitants. "'You are near the borders of the Shire now. "'And what do you want with me? "'It must be pressing. "'You were never a traveller unless driven, driven by great need. "'I have an urgent errand,' he said. "'My news is evil.' "'Then he looked about him as if the hedges might have ears. "'Nazgall,' he whispered. The nine are abroad again. They have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward. They have taken the guise of riders in black. I knew then what I had dreaded without knowing it. The enemy must have some great need or purpose, said Radagast. But what it is that makes him look to these distant and desolate parts, I cannot guess. What do you mean, said I? I have been told that wherever they go, the riders ask for news of a land called Shire. The Shire, I said, but my heart sank. <laughs> The Shire, Radagasc. Jeez, says Jackie Boatman. Yes, exactly. It's such a minor pedantic point of correction. We get so much of of Gandalf and and Radagasc's relationship right there in that one line. They're looking for a land called Shire. The Shire. It's a good line. So we remember Gandalf departing from the Shire. And here, the account is slightly different. Uh, for, I had, for I had a foreboding of some danger still hidden from me, but drawing near, is what he says. Now, at the time, he said, I have heard news. Perhaps a little of both. Perhaps, you know, more one now than the other. That's fine. So he travels south. The messages reached me telling of a war and defeat in Gondor. When I heard of the black shadow, a chill smote my heart, but I found nothing save a few fugitives from the south. Yet it seemed to me that on them sat a fear of which they would not speak. War is coming the shadow is lengthening the storm clouds are gathering i turned then east and north around the borders of the shire crucially and journeyed along the greenway not far from brie i came upon a traveler sitting on a bank beside the road with his grazing horse beside him just a chance encounter here with radagast de brown but at least radagast is searching for gandalf And then he tells them of the black riders, the Nazgul. The nine are abroad again. They have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward. They have taken the guise of riders in black. And oftentimes, new readers of the Lord of the Rings will, I guess most commonly, people who are reading the Lord of the Rings for the second time will know the Nazgul from the end of the story. They will know the Nazgul from from the, the return of the king. And then they will come back all the way to the beginning and think, what? They're just raggy little dudes on horseback. What is going on with the Black Riders? And here Radagast makes it completely clear. They have taken the guys. They are still seeking to stay under the metaphorical radar here. They are seeking to exert Sauron's influence and advance Sauron's agenda, but not attract too much attention. That is why the black writers conduct themselves as they do throughout the shire. It now makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How are the Nazgul normally guised? Asks emerging puppy rather beautifully. Uh, well, we'll get to that as we get to the end of the story. Yes, far more impressively than than uh, rag covered writers in 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 black rags. Yes. Um, good. Uh, Save girl three hundred nine says you can trust a dishonest man to be dishonest, but you can but you can trust an honest man to do something very stupid. The wisdom of Jack Sparrow. Yeah, fair, absolutely fair. Um, <laughs> so Gandalf here gets his confirmation that ill tidings are have come that that the shadow is spreading, that war is imminent. He now has the fear of the ring in his heart. Things are going really badly, so he rides to Orthanc, and we get to meet for the first time, Saruman. But I rode to the foot of Orthanc and came to the stair of Saruman. And there he met me and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. "'So you have come, Gandalf,' he said to me gravely. But in his eyes there seemed to be a white light as if cold laughter was in his heart. "'Yes, I have come,' I said. "'I have come for your aid, Saruman the White.' The title seemed to anger him. "'Have you, indeed, Gandalf the Grey? he scoffed. "'For aid?' It has seldom been heard of of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid, one so cunning and so wise, wandering about the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. I looked at him and wondered. But if I am not deceived, said I, things are now moving which will require the union of all our strength. That may be so, he said, but the thought is late in coming to you. How long, I wonder, have you concealed from me the head of the council, a matter of greatest import? What brings you now from your lurking place in the shire? The nine have come forth again, I answered. They have crossed the river, so Radagast said to me. Radagast the brown, laughed Saruman, and he no longer concealed his scorn. Radagast the bird tamer, Radagast the simple, Radagast the fool. Yet he had just the wit to play the part that I sent him, for you have come, and that was all the purpose of my message, and here you will stay Gandalf the grey and rest from journeys. For I am Saruman the Wise, Saruman Ringmaker, Saruman of many colors. So, this is the moment of great betrayal, just foreshadowed by Gandalf previously in the Council of Elrond. Betrayal has been the greatest fear of the forces of good and light in the world from the beginning. Sauron was a liar, was a deceiver, was a manipulator before he was the shadow. Sauron led and charmed and deceived, and betrayal was therefore inevitable. And here we have Saruman. Saruman is an interesting and, and curious character because he his is the greatest betrayal, I think it's probably fair to say, that we will see in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, and The Lord of the Rings is not free of excuse me, not free of acts of betrayal, but Saruman is singular. His name literally means, uh, it is an Anglo-Saxon name in the Tolkienian tradition, right? We've talked about this a lot. Tolkien will take the most obvious name for something and simply cast it in another language, and that will be the name of that character or or place or whatever. So Saruman's name is an Anglo-Saxon name that simply means man of skill, man of craft. He is wise in the sense that he is crafty and cunning. It is not a knowledgeable wisdom. It is a wisdom of cunning and artifice. And that's exemplified here in this slide. We begin and end on pretty much the same point, actually. There he he met me and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. Interesting incidental detail there, Gandalf. You tell us literally nothing else about Saruman. You don't tell us what he looks like, what he was wearing, whether he was carrying a staff. You tell us nothing about Saruman, except that he was wearing a ring on his finger. And right here at the end of of uh, at the end of this passage, for I am Saruman the Wise, Saruman Ringmaker, Saruman of many colors. He is a man of craft here, and like Sauron, he has taken to the creation of rings minor rings trinkets of rings but rings nonetheless as jackie boatman says beautifully here saruman knows a lot of things that does not make him wise absolutely right yes good good Oh, Lady Sorka asks, I've always wondered if Radagast survived or if Saruman killed him. My reading is that that Radagast returns to Rosgobel. I think he probably just goes back to his quiet life. Gandalf is not exaggerating, by the way, when he says it's been many years. It has presumably been centuries since they saw each other last. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it may seem as though, you know, this has... uh, Oh, David asks, isn't the Order of Wizards about two guys, if we discount Radagast? Well, technically four guys. We still count the blue wizards as as members of the Order. They are of the Astari. Uh, They went into the East and haven't been seen since, but technically, yes, four guys. Uh, But Saruman is the leader and, of course, the force in the council, too, the head of the council. That's important. When he's referring here to the White Council, he's referring to himself and to Gandalf and to Galadriel and to Elrond. I mean, if you think about, you know, those are powerful people and Saruman is at the peak. Saruman is at the pinnacle of that. And this, I think, explains why Gandalf isn't suspicious of Saruman prior to this, because we may be, you know, primed to be a little suspicious ourselves. There are hints hints, and suggestions that the One Ring may be out there in the world. And Saruman says, no, 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 no. Everything's cool. Don't worry. The One Ring? No, that fell in the river and was swept out to the sea. Seriously, don't worry about it. Incidentally, I have business near the Unduin, so, you know, just hang out here. It's all going to be fine. No, I don't think that we should take action against the Necromancer of Dol Guldur. You know, that would be, that would be rash. That would be impetuous. Let's not, you know, be too hasty. Let's, Let him just hang out there. Maybe he's a friendly necromancer. Maybe everything will be... Okay, all right. Finally, reluctantly, we will extend our force and drive him from Dol Goldor. That's what we'll do. Okay, finally, yes. But we have to remember, Saruman is a Maya. He is of enormous power and capability. He is every bit as great as Gandalf, arguably greater than Gandalf. He is the head of Gandalf's order and he is the leader of the White Council and he is pretty much of unimpeachable reputation. And I think that it can be hard for us coming into the story at this point with no knowledge of Saruman to really understand the extent of this betrayal, the apocalyptic extent of this betrayal. This is an absolutely stunning reversal. To have Saruman take action against Gandalf, to have him fall to power and to greed and to selfish desire, that would be bad enough. But to have him act in the name of Sauron, to have him act in the name of the Shadow, remember, the Maiar are sent, or the the Istari are sent from Valinor specifically to fight the Shadow. And it hasn't really worked out. The two blue wizards disappear into the east, Radagast goes native, and now Saruman sitting in his tower in Orthanc, making rings, embodying rings with his power exactly the way that Sauron did. Merging Puppy says, so how long has Saruman been compromised by Sauron? Well, that's an interesting question, and I don't think that we get a completely definitive answer. We know that uh, Saruman has been searching for the ring. We know that he has been, um, that he has, you know, been, been, trawling the, the bottom of the Anduin, trying to find the ring. Uh, presumably, there was some influence between the Necromancer and Saruman back when the Necromancer was at Dol Goldur. So even there, we're looking at, what, 70 years since? I mean, that's a long time. Not long in the lifespan of one of the wizards, admittedly, but a long time nonetheless. So it's it's difficult to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Gildarts Winter says, what of the blue wizards? It's an excellent question. We just don't know. We know literally nothing about them five wizards come to middle earth two of them go into the east and are literally never mentioned again so unfortunately we just didn't get the uh we didn't get the story there from from the professor good (laughs) tom says i think we collectively go with the fan theory that dumbledore is one of the blue wizards he's an old man at that point i think yeah yeah good all right let me see here make sure i haven't missed anything good Oh, Karen's giving us a gloss of the actual Anglo-Saxon. Uh, Old English, siru, a noun that can actually mean craft, artifice, wild, deceit, stratagem, ambush, treachery, and plot, or tellingly for what is to come, that which is contrived with art, a machine engine fabric. Beautiful, Karen. Thank you so much for that. Yes. Excellent, excellent. So again, perfectly named character here. And we get the reversal, and we get some talk, of course, about uh, about colors but instead rather than talk about that in the context of the last slide let's talk about it in the context of this slide where we are going to get two of the most important lines about Gandalf and about Saruman in the entire book so he has proclaimed himself Saruman of many colors I liked white better I said white he sneered it serves as a beginning white cloth may be dyed the white page can be overwritten the white light can be broken in which case it is no longer white said I And he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. This is fantastic. This is just, just wonderful stuff. Let's, uh, Let's break this down. Okay, so Saruman of many colors. This is all about artifice. This is all about. Uh, this is all about craft. This is about creation. Saruman has taken into himself the power to create. He has, more strictly speaking, usurped the power of creation. Here, he is going to be ultimately, you know, representative. In fact, of that impulse primarily within the frame of this story. So Gandalf responds, "I liked white better," and there isn't a clean delineation of what the colors mean. We don't know why Saruman was the white and Gandalf was the gray and Radagast was the brown and the blue wizards were both presumably the blue. We don't really know what that means beyond, you know, personal preference, perhaps. Radagast the brown certainly seems to match his kind of Rosgobel, you know, hanging out in the forest with the animals lifestyle. That makes a certain amount of sense. And certainly as leader, Saruman the white makes a lot of sense. But here we see how that turns. White, he sneered, it serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed. The white page can be overwritten. The white light can be broken. And that is an enormously powerful and singular line. If you remember our discussion of, um, of On Fairy Stories, and, and actually around the discussion of On Fairy Stories back in the very first episode of There and Back Again, I talked about Tolkien's poem that he wrote for C.S. Lewis, Mythopia, in which he describes... The function of fantasy fiction, basically, he he describes the function of speculative fiction. He wasn't talking quite so narrowly, but but he was talking about this kind of creativity, this kind of creation of of the um of the second uh, you know, secondary creations. I'm getting distracted here. Glad Rebecca's pointing out in the YouTube chat. Not really like Morgoth, Saruman couldn't create. He could just distort created things. Absolutely correct. Like Morgoth, like Sauron, Evil cannot create. You're absolutely right. When I said he was taking into himself, you know, that that power and that mantle, that is his belief, but it is a limited thing. It is not actual creativity. But you're you're absolutely right to to clarify that. So in Mythopoeia, Tolkien makes the argument that all creation comes from God. You know, Tolkien was a staunch Catholic and, 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 you know, absolutely saw God at the heart of the universe, understood that kind of path of creation and creativity, that all creativity, all creation comes first from God, that God is the white light that through us and our acts of secondary creation is refracted into color. That is to say that we— of ourselves in a darkened room cannot create. We can only create as the light, as the creation of God flows through us and we transform it into color. But because we are transforming it into color, it is necessarily fragmentary. I mean, it is literally fragmentary. The light is being splintered and refracted through each of us, through every tiny act of creation and every great and significant act of creation too. And here, Saruman seems to be understanding that or or kind of misunderstanding that I suppose it serves as a beginning white cloth may be dyed the white page can be overwritten and the white light can be broken the white light of creation here can be broken can be twisted can be perverted to dark ends in which case Gandalf responds it is no longer white and he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom it is tempting sometimes as you're reading the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, as you're studying this enormously thoughtful and complex text that clearly has incredibly deep underpinnings, you know, philosophical foundations that go all the way to the core. It can be very tempting to, to extract lines from Tolkien's work and kind of hold them up to the light and scrutinize them as, as philosophy, you know, to, to pull this line in particular and say, okay, is this what Tolkien believed, really believed? And I think we are closer to it in this line than pretty much any other line that we get from Tolkien in his, in his published work. I think that concept, he that breaks the thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom, speaks to his understanding of, gosh, modernity, industry, warfare, you know, uh, conflict in general, in fact, the idea that we should seek to demonstrate mastery over something through its disassembly, that it it is only when we, you know, as, as scientists and explorers, it is only when we have pinned the butterfly to the corkboard that we understand the butterfly, but in the pinning itself, we have destroyed the thing. We must understand holistically, we must understand contextually. That life of balance that 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 life of integration is something that Tolkien argues in favor of in many different ways throughout this entire book and throughout all of his extended work and into his letters and and you know across his entire career that to isolate to disassemble to fragment and to fracture to break the thing particularly to demonstrate our intellectual mastery over it and to understand something is to demonstrate intellectual mastery over it. It is to prove dominance in Tolkien's worldview, right? To completely understand something is to say, no, I understand, I I apprehend what you are. I discern what you are, and I am therefore superior to you. And that obviously pushes violently against Tolkien's preoccupations with magic and with myth and with ancient stories, you know? There are things which ought not to be known in that sense known intellectually there are things which ought to be known through wisdom rather than than intellect yeah yes exactly as glederbeck says it's the tale of the golden goose only more so you're absolutely right yes that's that's the that's the fable right there yes good um good 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 <laughs> merging puppy says seriously a tide pan averts this whole disaster and lady sorka adds saruman really should have talked to the hobbits sooner about hobbits have a lot of great laundry tricks yes good good so there it is um <clears throat> Oh, this is interesting. Okay, merging puppy asks, "How did Tolkien value civility and industriousness so much, but not civilization and industry so much?" That's very good, right? That's a, that's a very fine reading there, merging puppy. Good, good, uh, good analysis there. Um, I think it is when anything is taken to excess, and anything is taken to excess in a particular fashion. Whenever we are encouraged to view other people as objects whenever we dehumanize and that is pretty much right like the core of of tolkien's kind of philosophical antipathy to to the modern world to to his then contemporary modern world that is the heart of it he objects to objectification and dehumanization. And anytime someone is dehumanized, whether that is a kind of anonymous dehumanization caused by mass civilization and mass communication and mass transit, you know, we are blurred together so that we become a population rather than an actual community, rather than a collection of individuals, that's dehumanization. Anytime we seek to use others as tools or we seek to extract from others power or influence or wealth, that's dehumanizing you know we should in an ideal world work with industry and civility alongside our fellows now i say alongside our fellows and that sounds super egalitarian and then i'm sure you all think of the shire and think well pretty great if you're a gentle hobbit pretty great if you're one of the you know noble families of the shire less great if you're sam gamgee but actually not i mean we can, as as I've said before, you know, we've discussed this a few times, talking about the shire. We can have, you know, issues from a modern egalitarian perspective with that kind of hierarchical social structure. But the fact remains that Sam is happy. You know, everyone is happy. And if you take as read the idea that the social hierarchy is good and, benedem- and, and benevolent, excuse me, which admittedly it has never been in the real world, but does appear to be more or less in the shire in this fictional version, then I think that that notion of both civility and, and industriousness actually pushes back against the idea of civilization and industry. Civilization and industry are civility or, or kind of an orthodox kind of socially mandated civility and industriousness writ large. But in both senses, they are dehumanizing. We are removing you as an individual or we are removing you entirely and replacing you with a machine. We are we are removing the, the human elements from our daily interactions. That was what Tolkien pushed back against. And of course, he pushed back against that most profoundly in the arena of war you know he was um he was very skeptical of modern warfare and by modern warfare i'm not even necessarily just talking about the first world war though obviously that was that was terrible you know the 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 headlong march into to full on destructive pro, uh, progress there is Called out specifically in The Goblins back in The Hobbit. You remember their crafting of great and terrible machines of devastation, you know? That's pretty much an explicit connection back to Tolkien's views on war. But even as he was writing The Lord of the Rings, he was corresponding with his son Christopher, who was serving in South Africa in the Royal Air Force. And Tolkien was skeptical of the whole concept of an air force like he understood intellectually the need for air superiority and okay if they have one then we have we have to have one too but airplanes and kind of war from a distance is antithetical to Tolkien's sense of virtue, his sense of good. There is nothing noble about bombing someone in Tolkien's worldview, right? Because that is, again, literally dehumanizing. We're not seeing the people. We are seeing the target. We're seeing the... the target, you know, the, 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 um, opportunity to, to cause devastation and kind of material harm on our enemy. It's a strategic and tactical decision, but it's not a human decision. Yeah. Um, I'm talking a long time about this and we need to keep pushing on, but there are a couple more questions here as I scroll back. Uh, yes. As Graham says, uh, world war one really shaped his opinion of what science and industry could do and world war two as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Uh, During the war, Graham continues, humankind died headlong toward progress and murdered half a generation. He witnessed it firsthand. To him, that was the end result of industry. Yes, though, crucially, Tolkien wasn't just opposed to industry in its most militaristic application. He was also opposed to factories. He he opposed kind of, he looked back fondly at the pre-industrial golden age. You know, that's what the Shire is. There's a reason, by the way, that in the Shire, we don't have any machine more sophisticated than a mill. We have, what are the the machines that they call out? The fire bellows, the mill, and there's another one that's that's eluding me right now. Perhaps those of you who've read the beginning of the book more recently than I have can can remind remind me of what the third machine is. But the mill is the most sophisticated machine, and the mill is a medieval machine. I mean, he's looking back far beyond the the kind of advent of industrialized agriculture even. So it's not just in its military aspects that he is skeptical of the virtues of industry and skeptical, does the professor a disservice, outright hostile to the virtues, outright you know critical of, of the, the, the virtues of industry in that sense, but it is more broadly applicable and it is more to do too with the, the harm that it does to society. Um, let me see here. And glad Becky says, I would suspect that Tolkien did not think happiness comes from being rich or top tier since he made Sam such a happy character. Absolutely. And, and Ham Gamgee's a happy character and Farmer Maggot's a happy character. And there are all of these characters we meet that are lovely. And remember, the worst characters that we meet are gentle hobbits, the Sackville Banganses. They are the worst ones. You know, uh, uh, I should say, I suppose, they're the worst ones that we met so far. The worst one that we meet outright will be related to that aforementioned Mill because the Mill, even in the Shire, is a symbol of industry. It is a symbol of the manipulation of social relationships by economics. And that's troublesome. That leads us to the modern world and Tolkien did not approve, yeah. Good, all right, let's keep going on here. Um, The hand loom, yes, it's a hand loom. Thank you so much, Becca, you did it, great. (laughs) i knew someone would get it and i should have guessed becca that it would be you that's excellent and tom says there's also a clock in the hobbit yes the clock is anachronistic the clock does not sit comfortably alongside the rest of the stuff but you're absolutely right tom there is yes uh okay let's keep going because uh we've talked about the path of wisdom we've talked about the breaking of things we talked about saruman of many colors and then oh this is okay so i i think i had a slide in here at one point and now don't um so, what happens here is that Gandalf is imprisoned in Orthanc and he escapes. He escapes thanks to the assistance of Gwaihir, the great eagle, Gwaihir, the, the swift, the lord of the wind, as he is called. Uh, Gwaihir is going to be significant later. Uh, Gwaihir comes from uh, a Sindarin term, Gwai meaning meaning storm or wind, and here meaning lord or master. So, Gwaihir literally meaning wind lord here. He is. Uh, Uh, a friend of Gandalf's, an ally of Gandalf's. It has been questioned whether or not uh, Gwaihir, the Lord of the Wind, is the Lord of the Eagles that we met back in The Hobbit. And though we don't have enough information right now to speculate about that, we can say definitively, in fact, that he is not, because in Return of the King, Gandalf counts up how many times he has ridden Gwaihir, and it is too few for Gwaihir to also be the lord of the eagles that we meet back in uh, back in the pages of The Hobbit. So this is a brand new eagle for us. We get to meet him here, and he carries Gandalf down from Orthanc, and we begin this slide. <clears throat> he set me down in the land of Rohan ere dawn, "'And now I have lengthened my tale over long. "'The rest must be more brief. "'In Rohan I found evil already at work. "'The lies of Saruman and the king of the land "'would not listen to my warnings. "'He bade me take a horse and be gone, "'and I chose one much to my liking but little to his. "'I took the best horse in his land, "'and I have never seen the like of him.' Then he must be a noble beast indeed,' said Aragorn, "'and it grieves me more than many tidings "'that might seem worse to learn that Sauron levies such tribute. "'It was not so when I was la- uh, "'Excuse me, it was not so when last I was in that land.' Nor is it now, I will swear, said Boromir. It is a lie that comes from the enemy. I know the men of Rohan, true and valiant, our allies, dwelling still in the lands that we gave them long ago. The shadow of Mordor lies on distant lands, answered Aragorn. Saruman has fallen under it. Rohan is beset. Who knows what you will find there if ever you return? Not this, at least, said Boromir, that they will buy their lives with horses. They love their horses next to their kin, and not without reason. For the horses of the Ritamar comes from the field come from the fields of the north, far from the shadow, and their race as that of their masters is descended from the free days of old. So we're foreshadowing here Rohan and again seeing this conflict, this this butting of heads between Aragorn and Boromir. Aragorn here taking the sensible, pragmatic approach. Well, we've heard that. Sauron is is levying supplies from rohan that he is taking horses from rohan and boromir says no i know those men that is impossible they would never give up their horses again these two men at conflict with one another that is uh, just charming just utterly charming actually yes good shadow facts, says becca ella the true hero of the whole story yes yes And Jackie says too, I love this moment from Boromir to Rohan's defense. Yeah, we're not really, um, Aragorn isn't being directly critical of Rohan, I suppose, but he is, as as he says, the shadow of Mordor lies on distant lands. Saruman has fallen under it. And again, because we came in so late to the story, we don't know what that means. But that is, you know, from our perspective, that is like if someone says, the shadow of Mordor lies on distant lands, Gandalf fell beneath it, you know? That, That someone that we absolutely trusted and thought, to be among the very best in the world has fallen to the shadow. Rohan is beset. Who knows what you will find there if ever you return, but Boromir is certain, which I like. Yeah. (laughs) Heroes and Bard says, the story of Boromir, well-intentioned, ultimately mistaken. Fair. Fair. (laughs) Okay. We got to catch up with Gandalf here. So he gallops north from Rohan on the aforementioned Shadowfax, the swiftest horse in all the world. I gather, excuse me, let me do my Gandalf voice. I gathered to Weathertop, I galloped to Weathertop like a gale and I reached it before sundown on my second day from Bree and they were there before me. They drew away from me for they felt the coming of my anger and they dared not face it while the sun was in the sky. But they closed around at night and I was besieged on the hilltop in the old ring. No, Vamonsul, I was hard put to it indeed. Such light and flame cannot have been seen on Weathertop since the war beacons of old. At sunrise I escaped and fled toward the north. I could not hope to do more. It was impossible to find you, Frodo, in the wilderness, and it would have been folly to try with all the nine at my heels, so I had to trust to Aragorn. But I hoped to draw some of them off, and yet reach Rivendell ahead of you and send out help. Four riders did indeed follow me, but they turned back after a while and made for the ford. it seems. That helped a little... there were only five not nine when your camp was attacked we saw the lights on weathertop and we were right gandalf was there this was remember when we found the uh the scorch marks in the little g room with the three scratches next to it indicating that gandalf had been there on october the third that is exactly what happened and gandalf faced down the nine let's just take a minute. To think about that, I galloped to Weathertop like a gale and I reached it before sundown on my second day from Brie, and they were there before me. They drew away from me, for they felt the coming of my anger and they dared not face it while the sun was in the sky. The nine are gathered, and Gandalf drives them back with the force of his anger and the sun above him. But they closed round at night, and I was besieged on the hilltop in the old ring of Amon I was hard put to it indeed. Such light and flame cannot have been seen on weathertop since the war beacons of old. Now, those of us who have read behind the scenes a little bit might remember that Gandalf is wielding the ring of fire, so he had a little help here, but still one hell of an achievement to face down the nine, and then to lead them away, to pull four away, for there were only five and not nine when your camp was attacked. Now we're putting all the pieces together. It's pretty serious right there. Distant lightning explained, says Graham Ward. You'd better believe it. Yes, yes. Okay, now we have to pivot away. We have five slides left and 20 minutes. Let's keep pushing on here. Um, Because, well, okay, I've already mentioned the eagles, you guys, (laughs) why don't the eagles carry the ring all the way to mount doom and just drop it in from above um well okay we're going to talk about that more when we talk about the eagles i guess but the other question that people ask about the lord of the rings perhaps superficially is well why not just give the ring to tom bombadil and the answer is addressed right here in the council of elrond which i adore um excuse me the Barrowites we know by many names, and of the old forest many tales have been told. All that now remains is an outlier of its northern march. Time was when a squirrel could go from tree to tree, from what is now the Shire to Dunland, west of Isengard. In those lands I journeyed once, and many things wild and strange I knew. But I had forgotten Bombadil. If indeed that is still the same—excuse me. If indeed this is still the same that walked the woods and hills long ago, and even then was older than old. That was not then his name. arwen Benedar we called him, oldest and fatherless but many another name he has he has since been given by other folk, foreign by the dwarves, orald by the northern men, and other names besides. He is a strange creature, But maybe I should have summoned him to our council. He would not have come, said Gandalf. Can we not send, still send messages to him and obtain his help, asked Erisor? It seems he has the power even over the ring. No, I would not put it so, said Gandalf. Say rather that the ring has no power over him. He is his own master, but he cannot alter the ring itself, nor break its power over others. And now he has withdrawn it to a little land, within bounds that he has set, though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. But within these bounds nothing seems to dismay him, said Aristor. Would he not take the ring and keep it there, forever harmless? No, said Gandalf, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, but he would not understand the need. And if he were given the ring, he would soon forget it or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. Merging Puppy has the question right here in the YouTube chat. In all camps, with exclamation points and question marks, how do you forget Bombadil? This is Elrond talking right at the beginning here. Time was when a squirrel could go from tree to tree, from what is now the Shire to Dunland, west of Isengard. In those lands I journeyed once, and many things wild and strange I knew, but I had forgotten Bombadil. If indeed this is still the same that walked the woods and hills long ago, and even then was older than the old, even then was older than the old. That was not then his name. Eärwen Benedar, we called him, oldest and fatherless. We understood him well enough to call him oldest and fatherless but I'd forgotten about him. Huh, weird. He's, what, maybe two weeks from here, I guess? And as we know, the elves travel that western road quite often back and forth to the Shire, and it is the old forest. I mean, presumably the elves have some kind of connection with it. Bombadil, Bombadil, rings a bell. Why does Elrond not remember Tom Bombadil? Why is Tom Bombadil not pretty near the top of the list of weird things that you think about in this part of Middle Earth. Well, I think that we get our answer here too. And it comes right at the end. Gandalf says, say rather that the ring has no power over him, he is his own master. Gandalf unintentionally echoing Tom Bombadil there. He is master. He cannot alter the ring itself nor break its power over others, and now he has withdrawn into a little land within bounds that he has set, though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. He has withdrawn from a larger world, at least, if not the world in totality. Yes. And and then Aristotle questions, can we not take the ring to him? Can he not keep it? And Gandalf says, no, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, but he would not understand the need. And if he were given the ring, he would soon forget it or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. Just as, apparently, Tom Bombadil had no hold on Elrond's mind. Now, elves are not infallible in this regard. Uh, I actually went scouring through the pages of The Lord of the Rings looking for references to elves and memory, and their memories are imperfect. They do forget things over time. But Elrond is the lore master. He is, as we discussed last time, arguably the greatest lore master in the world. This is why Boromir came to him, because goodness knows Gondor has nothing to do with the North, and certainly nothing to do with the elves, and doubly certainly nothing to do with Rivendell specifically, but Boromir comes here because Elrond knows more than anyone else. And he forgot about Tom Bombadil. And I wonder here if we see the heart of Bombadil, you know? I wonder here if we can get a sense of what Bombadil is, the fact that he exists slightly outside of the world, the fact that as the ring has no power over him because he belongs to himself and is not a part of the world beyond that, so he cannot be remembered, so he cannot be perceived, he cannot be retained. He is not of the world and he is elusive. And I wonder... little we think of bombadil because it's curious so many of the references that we get to tom bombadil happen in that like three chapter span after we meet tom bombadil then he pretty much disappears from the story we're going to get a couple of references and they are very sporadic later in the book and then after the events of the lord of the rings gandalf is going to travel to the old forest and hang out with tom bombadil like after the story is well over Gandalf's going to go and sit and have tea with Tom Bombadil and Goldberry and find out a little more about him, but we're not there yet. And Bombadil almost seems to fade from memory, which I find completely fascinating, particularly since his memory, we're told, cannot hold the ring. Tom Bombadil is of a different order entirely, of a different kind. And it may be that this kind of this lack of porosity when it comes to to memory, you know that, that he cannot absorb or be absorbed may be an, a, a conscious choice. it may be part of his power. it may be a function of the way that he lives his life, retreated and secluded in this tiny world that he passes beneath the surface, or it may be something else entirely. We can speculate about that, but yes it's uh it's fascinating. I, I love this reference, and it was only this time that I caught that both of those both of those little things there, yeah <clears throat> Yes, uh, Lorna Jane says, what does he mean by, but I had forgotten? Forgotten until when or what? Presumably forgotten until Bombadil was just mentioned. Yeah, uh, Bombadil was raised in conversation there. And yes, yes. I hope Tom Bombadil doesn't forget his Lady Goldberry says, Glad (laughs) Rebecca, I don't think that'll happen. I think that's pretty good. Yes. (laughs) Good, good. All right, let's uh, push on. So that's our discussion of Tom Bombadil. And we're kind of ticking things off the list now, right? (coughs) Excuse me. And we're going to move into one of these conflicts. And what's beautiful throughout the back half here as Gandalf's telling his story, right up front, Elrond kind of takes charge, right? At the beginning of last week's reading, Elrond takes charge of the council and he says, okay, Glowen's going to tell us this and then we're going to hear a little from Aragorn and then I'm going to tell you the story of the ring and then, okay, I'll be interrupted by Boromir. Thank you, Boromir. And now Bilbo's going to tell us his part of the story of the ring and now it is time for Gandalf. And he kind of takes charge like that. But as the day wears on, the conversation itself starts to fracture and we keep getting these silences, these long silences as people are just ruminating on all that they have heard. And we get one here at the beginning of this next slide as Boromir proposes something risky. Silence fell again, even in that, Frodo, even in that fair house, looking out upon a sunlit valley filled with the noise of clear waters, felt a dread darkness in his heart. Boromir stirred and Frodo looked at him. He was fingering his great horn and frowning. At length he spoke. I do not understand all this, he said. Saruman is a traitor. But did he not have a glimpse of wisdom? Why do you speak ever of hiding and destroying? Why should we not think that the great ring has come into our hands to serve us in our very hour of need? Wielding it the free lords uh, excuse me, wielding it, the free lords of the free may surely defeat the enemy. That is what he most fears, I deem. The men of Gondor are valiant and they will never submit, but they may be beaten down. Valor needs first strength, and then a weapon. Let the ring be your weapon if it has such power as you say. Take it and go forth to victory. Alas, no, said Alrond. We cannot use the ruling ring. That we now know too well. It belongs to Sauron and was made by him alone, and it is altogether evil. Its strength, Boromir, is too great for anyone to wield at will, save only those who have already a great power of their own. But for them, it holds an even deadlier peril. The very desire of it corrupts the heart. Consider Saruman. If any of the wise should with this ring overthrow the lord of Mordor using his own arts, he would then set himself on Sauron's throne, and yet another dark lord would appear. And that is another reason why the ring should be destroyed. As long as it is in the world, it will be a danger even to the wise, for nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I fear to take the ring to hide it. I will not take the ring to wield it. Nor I, said Gandalf. For nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. Boromir's plan superficially seems like a good one. Well, okay, chance of chance you call it, this divine wind that blows from the west, you know, all of these good and fortuitous things that have happened to us, maybe the One Ring has been delivered unto us so that we might use it, so that we might use it in our defense. We have the strength. Now we've just been handed a weapon. The free lords of the free may surely defeat the enemy. That is what he most fears, I deem. And Aaron says, no, because to use this weapon would, A, simply empower Sauron. More evil in the world is only going to make Sauron's job easier. B, it would corrupt. It is utterly evil. It, is, it belongs to Sauron and was made by him alone and it is altogether evil evil. Its strength, Boromir, is too great for anyone to wield at will, save only for those who have already a great power of their own. Except we know a couple of people who can wield it at will, kind of. I mean, not using it using it, but certainly wearing it. It's interesting there that Elrond inadvertently steps toward, you know, an acknowledgement of, of the uniquity of hobbits, you know, the special qualities possessed by Bilbo and Frodo, who can at least wear it at will, if not wield it at will. But for them it holds an even deadlier peril. The very desire of it corrupts the heart. Consider Saruman, if any of the wise should with this ring overthrow the lord of Mordor using his own arts, he would then set himself on Sauron's throne, and yet another dark lord would appear. Power corrupts. And this ring is the greatest and most corruptive power, because it doesn't just corrupt the way that all power corrupts. It doesn't just seduce the way that glamour and glory seduces. It doesn't just reassure the way that strength of arms and army reassures. It whispers to you. It wants evil. That is the danger of the ring. And the greater the power, the power required to wield it in the first place, the more dangerous you are going to be when you inevitably succumb to temptation. Isildur fell. He fell under the influence of the ring. And Isildur was among the greatest men who have ever lived. And now we cannot take it. Now we cannot wield it. As he says, for nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I fear to take the ring to hide it. I will not take the ring to wield it, nor I, said Gandalf. Slapped down Boromir. I mean, not a bad idea. And we must remember, we must be sympathetic to Boromir here. We must be forgiving of Boromir here because he literally showed up this morning and didn't know any of this. So, you know, it's fine that he's taking a little while to, to acclimatize here, but certainly... This is a pretty forceful response. For those of you who are uh, are curious here, Sauron was a Maya. He was the same kind of order of beings as those beings which would ultimately become the wizards. And he was corrupted by Melkor. He was corrupted by the the Vala who fell, essentially, the, the, the you know, yeah, good, good. <laughs> Boromir, I'll do it, I'll take it, it'll be great, yes. <laughs> imagine if saruman got the ring and wore it asks Gildarts winters nothing good would have come of that i mean it would literally have just been a new dark lord yes good so the strength here and the uh the um the power here yeah is 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 palpable good all right um but if we can't use the one ring aren't there those other rings as glowin suggests "'Still, it might be well for all,' said Glowin the Dwarf. "'If all these strengths were joined and the powers of each were used in league, "'other rings there may be less treacherous that might be used in our need. "'The seven are lost to us if Balin had not found the Ring of Thror, which was the last. "'Not has been heard of it since Thror perished in Moria. "'Indeed, I may now reveal it was partly in hope to find that ring that Balin went away.' "'Balin will find no ring in Moria,' said Gandalf. "'Thror gave it to Thryan his son, but not Thrain to Thorin.' It was taken with torment from Thryne in the dungeons of Dol I came too late. Ah, alas, cried Glowen. When will the day come of our revenge? But still there are the three. What are the three rings of the elves? Very mighty rings, it is said. Do not the elf lords keep them? Yet they too were made by the dark lord long ago. Are they idle? I see elf lords here. Will they not say? The elf lords cannot be used. The uh, The elf lords, excuse me, the elven rings, the three, are used but they cannot <coughs> excuse me be put to devastating effect in the way that the other rings can the three were made outside of the influence of saruman the three are pure and untouched and yes yeah, rings what rings are running and Gandalf shift shift uncomfortably yes good <laughs> glowing here continuing to push forward and now we know what happened to the ring now we know that, that indeed Sauron definitely took back one of those rings he took it from Thryan in the dungeons of Dol Goldor after uh, after uh, you know masquerading as the necromancer there so and, and also of course here we get the, the beat that Balin had returned to Moria partly in the hope of recovering one of the dwarven rings perhaps that would have been less than good less than good yes all right So now to the big part, now to the end of the chapter. This is where we really fix our course for the rest of the book. Bilbo volunteers to carry the ring and does so really rather beautifully, but Gandalf tells him, no, the ring has moved on from you. You would do better to stay here, to stay in Rivendell, to finish your book. And then Frodo speaks up. Bilbo laughed. I have never known you to give me pleasant advice before, he said, and all your unpleasant advice has been been good. I wonder if this advice is not bad. Still, I don't suppose I have the strength or luck left to deal with the ring. It has grown, and I have not. But tell me, what do you mean by they? The messengers who are sent with the ring. Exactly, and who are they to be? That seems to me what this council has to decide, and all it has to decide. Elves may thrive on speech alone, and dwarves endure great weariness. and I am only an old hobbit, and I miss my meal at noon. Can we think of some names now, or put off till after dinner? No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said. Though I do not know the way. Merging Puppy asks, "I get why the One Ring is powerful, and maybe even the Three. But what made the Seven and Nine Rings powerful? Well, the Seven and Nine Rings were also imbued with a measure of Sauron's power. They were imbued with a, a measure of his essence, and they were designed to corrupt. So, what made them powerful was this this purposeful domination of the wearer. You know, they, they were." They were trinkets, kind of. I mean, they were not supposed to be transformative themselves, but ultimately did transform. And that's, yeah. Yes, as Heroes and Bards is calling out here, and, and Jackie, too, and Angela, too, I think we found a line that we like quite a lot here. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. So what is happening here in this fourth paragraph? Everyone is thinking everyone is in deep thought the noon bell rings and no one thinks to move which is unspeakable considering that there are uh, are other you know hobbits present in this room as sabrina asks in the youtube chat obvious question what other will was using frodo's voice well that's a really interesting question a great dread fell on him as if he'd been awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never might after all never be spoken an overwhelming longing to resist and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last with an effort he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. Okay, so he feels the dread. He's been waiting for this. He has sensed the coming of this and but had, had clung to this hope, this vain hope that maybe it wouldn't, Maybe maybe it would be fine. Maybe he can just stay here. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last with an effort he spoke and then he's surprised to hear his words. What was he going to say? What did he intend to say? At last with an effort he spoke and wondered to hear his own words. It seems as though he's trying to say something and then what comes out of his mouth is I will take the ring though I do not know the way. For me, the question is simply this. I have no doubt that Frodo is under the influence of the ring right now. I have no doubt that the ring is playing its little game. So here's the question. Is the ring responsible for the great dread falling on him? Or is the ring responsible for the overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell? This longing that fills all his heart. I mean, presumably the ring doesn't want to remain In Rivendell of all places, but it does not want to go to be destroyed. Or is it the dread? Is the dread saying, excuse me? The great dread is is wanting to refuse the call, wanting to say, No, I don't, I don't want to go. I want to surrender the ring or 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 you know go back to the Shire where I might be more vulnerable to the Nazgul, or hey, I'll just go and cross the fort of Bruinen again, and maybe the nine will still be hanging out there. Yeah. Glad Rebecca says, I think the ring is subtly whispering all the things that make him feel the dread and amplifies his natural desire for the peace of home, etc. Yes. And Jackie says, this moment of outspokenness. This is a great poll, Jackie. This moment of outspokenness reminds me of Frodo stabbing the witch king at Weathertop. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is a moment of of absolutely incalculable courage. This is a moment of absolute truth that when you get to the heart of a hobbit, you find valor that hobbits are irrepressible in that way. Even Bilbo, even Bilbo was saying, well, all right, cool, I'm a million years old and I've had a pretty good vacation and I'm solid at poetry. Okay, I'll take the ring to Mount Doom and throw it in. No, Bilbo, you can't, it has passed on from you, but you know, thank you for that, thank you for that push. Though even in that moment, maybe Bilbo is acting under the influence of the ring. Maybe the ring is subtly whispering to Bilbo, yes yes, volunteer for this. You and me, we can go on a little journey. We'll be able to slip away from these huge, slow, clumsy men. We'll be able to slip away into the forest and, hey, who knows, maybe even make our way down into a cave under the misty mountains. I can show you where the tasty fish are. Maybe the ring is whispering to Bilbo right then, and that's why Bilbo wants it. It's kind of impossible to be sure. What we do know for sure or oh, actually, I suppose we should acknowledge one more alternative here, right? That the ring is not, in fact, infl- in, uh, excuse me, not in fact influencing Frodo through dread or through this overwhelming longing. Quite the contrary, that those feelings are natural for Frodo, and it is the ring that speaks. The ring is motivating this decision because the ring actually quite wants to go to Mordor. The ring actually really wants to go there and, 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 you know, be returned to its master because what are the odds that this hobbit is going to succeed? That's another possible interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Rohit says, I can imagine the ring looking at Boromir right now and being like, please be him, please be him, please be him, please be him. Yes, good. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Just realize, says Graham, the council could have ended in disaster if even one powerful lord was tempted and lunged for it, started a massive deathmatch. Sauron would have loved that. Oh, yes, yes. Having the ring here is spectacularly dangerous. Hey, Boromir, come on in. Come hang out with us. Ah, uh, BT-dubs, this is the one ring. It's the most powerful magical artifact in the world and could totally save your kingdom. You good where you are? You fine just sitting over there? Everything, everything good? How's your horn holding up? Pretty, pretty, pretty good? Yeah, you're right he says, the ring is taking advantage of Frodo's natural desires and bending them to its use. Yes. Good. Good. Gosh, the chat is is fast and furious tonight, you guys. This is wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. And this brings us to the end of our chapter. Erwand raised his eyes and looked at him, and Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of his glance. If I understand right all I have heard, he said... I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. This is the hour of the shire folk, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or, if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? But it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right— And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Beren himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. But you won't send him off alone, surely, master, cried Sam, unable to contain himself any longer and jumping up from the corner where he'd been quietly sitting on the floor. No, indeed, said Alwan, turning toward him with a smile. You at least shall go with him. It is hardly possible to separate you from him even when he is summoned to a secret council, and you are not. Sam sat down, blushing and muttering, Nice pickle we've landed ourselves in, Mr. Frodo, he said, shaking his head. I mentioned right at the beginning that, uh, that, uh, right at the beginning, not even of this session, I should say, right at the beginning of the chapter, right at the beginning of last week's session, that we would at the end, after all of this high oratory, after all of this myth, we would at the end pull our focus back to hobbits and hobbitry, and here we are. Right at the end, this chapter is about Frodo, and it is about Sam. It takes a long journey to get there, but it's kind of great. Here is of Bard says, the fact that Sam is so totally not intimidated by Elrond in this moment makes me love him even more. No, but he blushes, which I just love. He blushes and mutters, nice pickle we landed ourselves in, Master Frodo. He's not he's not intimidated by Elrond, he will not be cowed in his defense of Frodo, let me put it that way, but he is still aware that he's kind of crossed the line, and he is still aware that he just spoke up to his social betters, and that this is, this is uh, an embarrassing, vulnerable position, I just, I love it, but what I love most of all, of course, is, no, indeed, said Elrond, turning toward him with a smile, Elrond's unfathomable kindness here really speaks to me, it's so beautiful. He raises his eyes and looks at Frodo, and Frodo feels his heart pierced. And Elrond says, If I understand aright all that I have heard, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, that if you do not find a way, no one will. And I'm curious here what it is that Elrond has heard. If I understand aright all that I have heard. There's been little in the council that has suggested that. Frodo is the one to undertake this mission, or that Frodo is the one to succeed in this mission. Rather, we've pulled the frame of our conflict now so far away from Hobbits and the Shire that we actually require the intrusion of Sam here at the end to puncture this balloon of pomposity and return us back down to ground level again. So what is it about this council what is it that elrond has heard that makes him think yes not just i think this is the task appointed for you frodo and that if you do not find a way no one will okay frodo this is clearly to me clearly your job you are the guy but more than that this is the hour of the shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great to shake the towers and councils of the great this is so much more than, well, okay, Frodo, it should probably be you, or, okay, Frodo, you're the only one who can do it. This is the hour of the shire folk. The shire folk are going to change the world. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? Well, Alrond you're pretty wise. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? No one. Or... If they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? Well, the hour has struck, and Elrond now knows it. This, to me, rings of the Aina of the song that was sung at the creation of the world, when all of history was laid out before us. And I wonder here if Elrond is using this phrase somewhat metaphorically. If I understand or write all I have heard, is he talking about the music? Is he talking about the song that created the universe? Or the, the, certainly the song that created Arda? What does he mean here? I like the idea that Elrond can be can be talking, you know, idiomatically, that this is an elven idiom, you know? If I understand to write all I have heard, if I have heard the song correctly and I know the unfolding of history, then this seems to me to be true. I like that. <laughs> the hobbits are already great says merging puppy they invented golf they sure did all you've got to do is behead a goblin yes yes rahit says hugo weaving's performance made everyone seem so much more stern than he is in the books i was surprised when i finally got to the text after watching the movie yes i like the way that he handles the uh i like the way that he handles the moments of great import but he is lacking in in levity and lacking in warmth yes yeah Graham says, the culmination of all the history of the ring brings us to this. Frodo bears it and passed through terrible danger, still bearing it. He's the one. Yes, that may well be it. That may well be it. You're right. Good. No, Galatra He says Elrond didn't hear the song of the Ainur, he wasn't alive then. No, that's absolutely true. But I, I wonder if there is this, this kind of uh, idiomatic, you know, turn of phrase within the, the within elven communities. You know, if this is a, um, I'm sorry, I'm desperately trying to think of a matching idiom from real life and I can't think of one. And maybe if you can think of one and throw it out in the chat there, we, we can draw this connection. But I wonder if, if I understand to right, all that I have heard, if he is talking there metaphorically, not just about the things that he has heard here, but about his understanding, if I have correctly discerned the path of history, A.K.A. if I have heard the song, then I know this to be true. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? That too also kind of pushes into the idea of of the music, you know, of of the future being or the future, all of history being in a sense decided. Yeah. Um, and then look at what he says Look, look at this next beat it is a heavy burden so heavy that none could lay it on another I do not lay it on you we are as clear as we can be here nobody can give you this quest Frodo nobody can make you do this nobody can ask you to do this I am not doing it I will not lay this on you but if you take it freely I will say that your choice is right And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Baron himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. And these names don't mean anything to us except at this point for Baron, because we've just heard about Baron and Luthien. Aragorn just chanted his chant to us. And if these men were assembled together, if these elf friends were assembled together, the greatest heroes of yore, then Frodo's seat should be among them. And then we come back to Sam. We come back to Hobbitry. But you won't send him off alone, surely, master, cried Sam. Unable to contain himself any longer and jumping up from the corner where he had been quietly sitting on the floor, Sam just disappears from the narrative right at the beginning of the Council of Elrond and is there throughout, silent. Not a word, completely overlooked as hobbits are wont to be. But here he cannot restrain himself anymore. If Frodo's going, Sam is going too. You at least struggle with him. It is hardly possible to separate you from him, even when he is summoned to a secret council, and you are not. And uh, Sam sits down, blushes, mutters, and frames this as a nice pickle they've landed themselves in. It's just perfect. It's just perfect, yeah. All right, that is going to do it. And I'm only 10 minutes over time. That's pretty good, actually. That is the end of the Council of Elrond, you guys. We did it. We did it. Next session, The Fellowship of the Ring, Book 2, Chapter 3. The Ring goes south. We depart from Rivendell and we make for the Misty Mountains 3 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, August the 17th, 2017. We will push on to to session 29 of our new 98-part series, I guess. We've got so much to talk about, as ever. I am enormously grateful for your company, enormously grateful for your insight, for your support, for your brilliance. It is great to talk about talking with you all, all through the week. If you have thoughts, then you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at PointNorthMedia, or you can use the hashtag tabagain T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, or you can head on over to the Patreon-exclusive Discord channel. All the work that I do at Point North Media is made possible by your support on Patreon. Patreon is simply a A a system that exists to allow you to become a patron of the arts. You head on over there, you go to my page, you click the pledge button and you say, give this guy a buck a month or five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or however much you can afford, whatever you think is appropriate for the work that I do here at Point North Media. And then it's this seamless transition. And every month your credit card or your debit card will be dinged just a little bit, just, just gently dinged and you will help me continue to do all of this and that's not all if you head on over to the patreon page patreon.com/pointnorthmedia you will get access to exclusive content and you'll be able to join me every friday for the point north live q and a where i hang out for an hour and talk about Gosh, talk about everything. Talk about everything conceivable. I take listener questions, I talk about whatever's going on, I talk about plans for the future. If you want to come hang out and, you know, drink a cup of coffee or a beer, depending on what time of day it is, then you can do that thing. Your support makes all of this possible, and I am enormously grateful. And if you are listening to there and back again and somehow missed the excitement from Point North Media earlier this week, this last Tuesday, 48 hours ago, as of this recording, I released the first I recorded and then subsequently released the first episode of the new Season of Dear Mr. Potter, my study of the entire Harry Potter series. This is season three. We're discussing Prisoner of Azkaban. It's my favorite book. It was a really fun session uh, on Tuesday night, and I'm looking forward to our next session next Tuesday night. You can find that and so much more over at PointNorthMedia.com. Thanks so much. Do go and check that out. And if you love what we do here, then you know, tell a friend. Support is always good. Thank you. I will talk to you all next week. Take care. Have a good weekend, and I'll see you soon. Bye.